So this, you know, this question about why we do this is a helpful one to engage with. And I think most of the people here have been um, coming for some time or didn't raise their hand at least to admit it was your first time here. Uh, so for some people it's their first time here, it could be more obvious, like why I'm doing this, like why I came. And it could be some immediate experience of suffering. For many people that's a catalyst to come to Dharma practice or to try to learn meditation. Uh, for some people, they just come with a friend because they're curious. Uh, and for some people, maybe they've heard something about mindfulness or Buddhism, something like that, and, and check it out uh, in some way. But as you continue along in your life as a human being, like with anything, it's helpful to continue to explore, examine your relationship to your meditation practice or to dharma or to, you know, coming someplace, uh, even if it's a good habit to have, to kind of engage in some active, alive way with your practice, you could say. So that's actually what I'd like to talk about tonight, is just share some different ideas about um, you know, what might be some ways that we could consider uh, what we're doing here. And what are some ways that we could consider our Dharma practice? And my mind tends to work in sort of metaphors, so I'll share with you a lot of different sort of metaphors, and some of them might be helpful for you. Uh, some of them you might think are crazy, and that's okay. Uh, so it's just to help you engage with your own relationship to your practice, and hopefully to make that some kind of alive uh, aspect of your life. So I guess I should first introduce myself in case anyone doesn't know. So my name is Anushka. I'm also in the uh, Teacher's Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center along with Howie. Um, and I actually happen to live around the corner from here. So when I am in town, it's not such a big deal for me to come here. Uh, so I'm happy to get to be here with you. I also do have this group on Monday nights um, that meets at CIIS, which you're all welcome to come to. Um, although we are on summer vacation now, so we'll start again after Labor Day there. And I've been practicing uh, in this tradition for uh, about 25 years now. And certainly for myself, my relationship to the practice, to the Dharma, you know, and then being a, becoming a teacher about 10 years ago or so, um, my relationship to it all has changed. And I think that is a helpful and healthy thing. So in any aspect of our life, uh, it's helpful to examine your relationship to uh, anything, I think. So it could be, for example, uh, if you have been married to someone for a long time. Uh, say you got married when you are 25, and now you're 50. So you're probably a very different person at 50 than you were when you were 25. You know, your health is different, maybe your interests are different, what occupies your concerns are different. And in any relationship that is successful, people are able to engage in seeing each other as they are you know, in this moment and not actually relating to each other like they were 25 years ago. It certainly is true with children. You know, if any of you have children in your life, your own kids or nephews and nieces, grandchildren, uh, you have to be able to engage with those kids where they are now, you know, what they can do, what their abilities are, what their interests are. Uh, and in fact, it annoys kids a lot if you try to treat them like they were 
the last time you saw them. Right? If you treat them like they're younger, really not a good uh, recipe for a good relationship with kids. Right? Uh, so, and you know, with little kids especially, but even as they get older, they change so quickly. You know, so their cognitive ability and what they're interested in, what they can do, um, changes very quickly. I have a batch of nieces and nephews of a variety of ages, so I try and keep track of this if I don't see them for a while. Uh, you know, like who can go to the bathroom by themselves, who can't, and you know, who can feed themselves, and who needs their clothes picked out for them, and who is uh, actually playing sports, and you know, all this kind of thing. And even in relationship to one's own job or uh, one's physical body exercise life. Um, so uh, for myself, I played very competitive sports for some time. And then, you know, that was a long period of my life that that was the case. And then uh, I think I've been here before where I've talked extensively about <laughs> this topic. But then, you know, through the aging process, I have to like shift my relationship to exercise, to what I can do and how much and still have some kind of uh, active engagement with that, but not try to do the same stuff I could do 30 years ago. You know, that's also a recipe for injury and uh, unhappiness to do that. So, to our meditation practice. So, what's our relationship to our practice? And um, so, I like to call this talk 13 Ways of Looking at Your Meditation Practice. 13 Ways of Looking at Dharma. So the first one you could say is a kind of one that's come up through the popular uh, evolution of um, mindfulness practice, which is, I want to learn to meditate for stress reduction. And as part of the story of what can is be possible in this practice, uh, it's only part of it, but it's a legitimate uh, reason why people want to learn how to meditate. And many people are told, like, oh, you're stressed out, you should learn how to meditate. So. So sometimes stress reduction is something people come to. So just to be able to steady their attention a little bit, not seem as crazed, you know, learn to attend to the breathing, sit still for a little bit. Uh, so that is one legitimate reason to come to meditation. As I was saying, many people, particularly for Dharma practice, Buddhist practice, the big headline that the Buddha had was about suffering and the end of suffering. And so... I think that's been the number one reason why people have come to meditation practice over 2,600 years, actually, ongoing, is I am suffering, help. Yeah. But then, for many people who continue their practice, basically whatever that first level of suffering that was there, kind of sometimes after time, or maybe through the Dharma practice itself, shifts our relationship to that. So that clears up a little. So then we have to figure out, like, well, why am I still doing this if I still do it? And, and here's where I think it's very helpful to re-engage and find, you know, what is the active, interesting uh, way to relate to this? Because I can't really coast on the past way of relating anymore. You know, that, that first reason is gone. And so then you're faced with, okay, should I just give it up? Or is there something else here? You know, is there some sort of maturation of my relationship to this that's possible that makes it uh, continue to be a worthwhile, engaging uh, activity pursuit? And I'm talking about meditation practice since that seems to be the center of what many Dharma groups do, but really I'd like to hold it in the bigger picture of uh, the Dharma, Dharma practice, which includes how we are outside in our life and, you know, really the Eightfold Path, which I'll say some more about too. So stress reduction is one. Another one is just rest, you know, deep rest. 
That also is a legitimate reason to want to learn meditation. You're running around all the time, you have a big busy commute, your job is busy, you have to talk to people a lot. Finally, just give me 15 minutes of quiet and just breathing. can be very restful. Depending, of course, on what your mind is doing during those 15 minutes, but it can be restful to, to carve out that time, half an hour or 15 minutes, whatever it is. So some, some opportunity for practicing deep rest. And this is true of meditation practice. It can be extremely restful for the mind, for the body, actually even in a different way than sleep is. You know, in a, in a different way, it can be more refreshing in some way to practice uh, meditation. So a deep rest is another one. I think one of the times that I came here before, I talked about uh, mental training as one way to relate to Dharma practice. So similar to this uh, idea of physical training, like you can go to the gym and build muscles and get stronger, uh, that this kind of practice can also be considered some aspect of mental training. For some people, this works. They can relate to that uh, practice and mental training and... um, It's like building muscles or building these mental you know, uh, capacities that then can serve you in the other areas of your life. For some people, this metaphor bums them out because they think, I don't even go to the gym regularly, so <laughs> I don't really work with this like, physical training thing, so now there's another uh, thing that I have to do that seems like a drag. So right? Mental training might not work for you. But for some people, it does. And some people, it's like, oh, this is a discipline. And in some ways I feel as a society we're evolving in a way where people are recognizing just like physical training can be helpful, you know, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, but for all of us, some amount of physical activity is healthy for us. And then there's different recommendations, right? Like three times a week for half an hour per time or something like that, right? Uh, So similarly, I think there's a growing understanding that actually some mental training uh, is beneficial too and that this is uh, possible for us to do. So there's one reason why in our meditation, particularly this kind of meditation, mindfulness meditation version of it, is being taught in schools, little kids, and prisons, and hospitals, and all different settings. So this recognition of the mental training being helpful. Now shift gears a little bit, there's the, the basics of this mental training, but uh, what happens when you're practicing meditation? You know, what is it that you're doing? So in the Buddhist practice, we're trying to become aware of what it is that is arising. So we're bringing mindfulness to experience. But we're actually doing some inquiry into this. And we're using some quality of investigation to try to see like, what's actually true about our life. You know, what's actually true about what I call myself. How does suffering get created in my life? How does stress get created in my life? What are moments in which I'm at peace and what are moments in which I'm in struggle? And what's the difference between those? What's the recipe for that? So learning to investigate, uh, to inquire into this, is something you can do in your life in general, but it's helpful to have some time in which you kind of set up the lab conditions for checking out what's actually true. 
So you could consider your meditation practice some brief kind of lab time. Which like, okay, so if I just sit here and no one is bugging me, sitting here breathing, right, what happens then? What, what are the, the times when which I seem content? What are the times in which I seem agitated? What's going on with the mind and the body? What's the relationship between them? How does the idea of me get created? Yeah. So I'm throwing out many different questions, and kind of as you go along in the practice, different of these questions can get more interesting to you also to investigate. But it could be considered uh, developing this skills and giving yourself time to, to check out these questions through direct knowing, which is different than through reading about it in a book or uh, listening to someone else tell you something or memorizing something. Yeah. So getting your, your own opportunity to check this out. For me, this is one of the very uh, inspiring, has always been one of the inspiring and beautiful aspects of this practice is this quality of uh, the Buddha called like ehipasiko, like come and see-ness about the Dharma. You say, hear Dharma talks and then you could check it out in your experience. You know, is this actually true, what's being said? Is this sense of craving or clinging the cause of suffering? Or is it not? Or is it actually that person next to me is the cause of suffering? <laughs> is it the noise outside? Is it something inherent in the noise that's a problem? Or is it that there's actually something that's happening in the mind which is causing the problem? So this lab investigation is kind of an active one and uh, kind of more, in some ways, sort of mystical relationship is sort of like going deep-sea diving. So when we're in the world and having to engage with commerce and conversation, um, you know, there's a way in which it seems like we have to be engaged in the surface of things. and uh, You know, sometimes you can engage on multiple levels at the same time. The opportunity to go into silence is actually some opportunity to go deeper, sort of under the surface of things, to see like what's actually true. So I wonder how many people here have ever been on a retreat, like maybe a couple day retreat or something like that. Yeah? Okay, it's a good deal, people. So one of the cool things about going on a retreat, I mean, both you get to develop some greater collectedness, you know, sharpen their tools of this. But also you really get this opportunity to dive in you know, and see things in a different way. Ex- explore experience in a different way. Uh, so it is like, like deep sea diving in some way. You, can, you become this amphibious creature too if you go on a lot of retreats. You know. um, so it's like learning to see under the surface, fish, coral, you know, whatever. Like all this stuff that's actually influencing the way that we are on the surface, but that we don't always perceive. So here's another different perspective, uh, gardening. So in my Monday group we did a series about the seven factors of awakening. So these different qualities of heart and mind that actually create a fertile soil for enlightenment, for awakening. And as we're sitting and practicing, we're actually cultivating these different positive qualities. So in some ways, it's kind of like gardening, like gardening in your mind. Yeah. 
So once I um, lived in a house in uh, Massachusetts, and there was a area that was like potentially a garden, but we didn't know if it was good enough soil or not. So we sent a soil sample away to the UMass uh, Agricultural School, and they tested it to tell us if there's like lead or something poisonous there. And it turns out the soil was okay, but they also sent us this recipe of what to add to the soil to make it uh, like really juicy, you know, really fertile. So because we were uh, good students and also didn't know anything about gardening, we just followed that recipe. So they had to go get this much fertilizer, and, uh, like this kind of worm meal and mulch, and I think there was even like dried blood and different things to put in. So we followed this recipe, we put all this stuff in a little box thing. And then this was a, like a group house, so there was five of us, and we each had different ideas of what to grow. So it was like sunflowers and tomatoes and basil and, you know, eggplant and tomatoes. And so we planted all this stuff, not thinking that much about the order of where to put them and stuff, and then uh, watered it. And it was amazing. The garden just, like, flourished. It's, the, the soil was so good from all the stuff that we put in it. And our attention to it with watering and weeding, it just like, completely took off. So, your Dharma practice is also a little bit like creating the fertile soil in your mind. You know, a lot of the teachings of the Dharma are about uh, explaining this recipe for fertile soil. You know, fertile soil for awakening, for seeing clearly. You could say, for example, that following the training precepts is one dimension of this. You know, how do you create good soil for the mind? So one is like, try to live a life that doesn't create chaos and division and regret in the mind. That is not a good recipe for awakening. So gardening, weeding. Let's see what next. Okay, so people who have gone on retreat, sometimes you get this really great glow from going on a retreat. You know, you get to be quiet for a long time and no one's bugging you, you get very sharp. People come out beaming. Then they go back to their daily life. They start to sit at home. And then suddenly it's very disappointing because unless your life conditions look like a retreat center, then uh, the mind might go back to a more chaotic state in which your daily practice looks like rehashing your argument you had with your coworker, trying to remember where you put your keys, uh, worrying about this, that, and the other, reviewing the TV show that you watched last night, and so on and so forth. So sometimes it feels just like taking out the garbage. You're just sitting there and like replaying all this stuff, going, coming back to being present, replaying, coming back. So I remember one of my teachers telling me this, like, even if it feels like taking out the garbage, still do it. Because taking out the garbage is a useful thing to do. (laughs) Don't have expectations about it's supposed to be like this, it's supposed to be like that. You know, just do it. And even this kind of playing out of stuff that otherwise you might have repressed or held with tension or something like that, let it go. You still could be learning something from it. There still is some... uh, experience of what is suffering, what is not suffering. There still is a collecting of the mind and heart. So even if it doesn't feel profound, do it. Still do it. So taking out the garbage.
Some little bit is sometimes it, it strikes me it's like a kind of realigning. And one of the words uh, sati for mindfulness translates also as remembering. And this translation is interesting. This remembering is like coming together again. If you consider like the limbs of your body as different members, and so like during the day they get stretched out, or you know like you get kind of stretched out, and then it's like allowing yourself to recollect again. Yeah. So, I bet there's some cyclists out here. So, at one point I was working in a, a bicycle shop and people would come in to get their wheels trued up. They do this in the car sometimes too. They realign the wheels. Right? They put little weights on the wheels to make them like uh, balanced. So with the bicycle wheel, it's like the spokes, you know, you could tweak the spokes this way or that. And there's actually a little holder you put the bicycle wheel in with two things like this. And then you spin the wheel and you see when it rubs against one of these prongs. And then you tweak that spoke a little bit. And then you spin it again and you tweak it again, you know, like that. Until the wheel, instead of going like that, wobble, 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 you know, actually runs steady. So this is a little bit what's happening in our mind and heart too, you know, in practice consider this, that there's some, some truing up that's happening. But sometimes the truing up can be painful, <laughs> little, because you're reliving stuff that's like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or oh, I should have said that, or something. But just consider that all part of the, the process. You know, sometimes that's like realigning, remembering like uh, how to live with integrity, you know, what is truth, you know, connecting in some way. buying a lottery ticket. So it's said that uh, enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes you accident prone. So, uh, so consider that. <laughs> so then some, some other aspects. One is, and some of these will sort of contradict each other. You know, some of these seem like acquiring knowledge or learning something or doing something. There's also this way in which practice can develop into this uh, practice of resting and not knowing. As you start to deepen in your Dharma practice, you start to realize, like, yeah, everything's changing. And actually, we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. We think we know, but we don't actually know. And that usually makes us nervous, anxious. So there's an aspect of the mind that tries to control things and tries to pretend it knows what things are, tries to make people do things in a way that suits some script that we have. It's all very stressful and energy depleting. So it's a very simple act of just sitting, quietly breathing. could be construed as practice and resting and not knowing. And the more comfortable that you can get with that, the freer you can live your life. Maybe occasionally something happens in a way that you thought it would. Good. Much of the time it probably doesn't. Can that also be good? So practicing this resting in this way can be helpful. And then for all of us, it's helpful to remember, like, what is it that first drew us to this dharma? 
What is it that we know to be true? And for many of us, there's some kind of spark of, of some sense of connection to something that's really true, or that's, that's nature. You know, that's very, very uh, compelling to us in some way that's beyond words. So it's helpful to remember this. And in some ways here, the practice itself can be like a sacred ritual. You know, this can be this, this moment in your day in which you allow yourself to stop and actually reconnect with that in some really beautiful way. Sometimes I think of it as like, you know, there's this spark, and if you want the spark to become a fire, uh, you blow on it, right? So even just the, the act of breathing, you can just imagine, like, yes, it's blowing on the spark of truth, you know, that I actually want to consume my life. I want to live from this. I want this to be not just some special technique or practice for this time, but I want to be able to live from this dharma, from this truth, from this nature, you know, whatever level of understanding I have. So remind yourself of what's important and uh, what's true. And in some ways, in this way, sort of connecting with something larger. So here's where your dharma practice itself can be considered different than just a technique of mindfulness or stress reduction. And you're actually plugging into something, something vast, something timeless, you know, something that's been stretched over thousands of years. There's been people in all different continents kind of plugged into the same current. So giving yourself the opportunity and the busyness to to plug into that, to connect with that, to remember that in some way. So something precious, something precious that's there. So last one I'll say is a a metaphor from a a story... uh, and I can't remember if I've told this story here before. So I travel to teach different times, and uh, I was in the East Coast once a year or two ago, and uh, I was traveling from New York to Boston to go to this uh, retreat center there and teach. And uh, I was taking the subway from Brooklyn to uh, the bus station, and they had shut down the subway line. I didn't know why they shut down the subway line. It's very unusual in New York. And then you're trying to check in the news and stuff. And so it turns out that there were these kittens that got loose in the subway line. So they shut down the subway to try and find and save the kittens. <laughs> Which is not something you'd expect in New York. Yeah, but, uh, but it's actually very sweet. So then you know, they, they closed this for some time, and then um, they actually did find the kittens. And they interviewed these you know, MTA guys, and they're these like burly guys who are usually fixing the tracks and stuff. And, and they were like, yeah, we didn't want the kitchens to touch the third rail, or, you know, <laughs> we didn't want the train to run over them. And, you know, uh, and then they show them with the little kittens. And it was such a sweet thing. It's like, wow, the city's willing to shut down a subway line to, like, save the kittens. And um, It's like, what if we need to recognize there's something beautiful that's lost inside of us, you know? So you have to save the kittens inside you, you know? It's like, Stop. <laughs> So this is your practice, like every day, stop for that 30 minutes or 40 minutes, right? Like, find the kittens, you know, that. <laughs> those beautiful qualities inside of you, you know, those beautiful qualities of, of integrity, of generosity, of 
compassion of love. You know, it gets all covered up, all this stuff. So give yourself time to connect with that, to, to find that, you know. And it's as precious as this. Like, you don't want them to hit the third rail. You don't want them to die, you know. We want to cultivate this wholesomeness in ourselves, you know, in some uh, beautiful way. So if that seems fun to you, relate to it in that way for some time. So in general, I say, you know, all these different uh, ideas and metaphors, some of them kind of wacky, some of them you've heard before, is just to help you to uh, re-engage with some energy and some interest in your relationship to your practice. And even when the Buddha, you know, talked about this practice of uh, awakening, he talked about sometimes as you know, crossing, crossing some flood or crossing a stream. And he talked about you know, the, the raft, using the raft to get across the stream. But then actually to let go of the raft. So actually my experience of the past decades of this practice is that it's not even just like one kind of stream. You know, it's like crossing the wilderness and sometimes it's a raft and sometimes it's like using... A, having to use like ski poles and crampons and sometimes it's having to swing from vines and sometimes it's rolling down hills and getting messed up. And, you know. So in this way too, we've recognized, you know, what is the terrain in front of me now? You know, maybe you started from a sense of suffering and now you're moving forward with some sense of inspiration. You know, you see something in the distance, some person who inspires you. You know, maybe it's Howie himself who is here has some quality that's very inspiring to you or someone else in your life. You know. So you use whatever vehicle helps you to move through this in this period and then let it go. And then you know, pick up the next one. Right? So the main thing is really you know, this, this onward leading. Uh, onward leadingness can be this relationship to our practice to keep it alive. You know, keep it alive. Don't get complacent about it. And even if the meditation practice itself is not really engaging you at some point, you know, try and stay connected in some way with some aspect of the entirety of the Eightfold Path. You know, it could be about practicing with integrity, it could be about speech, it could be uh, learning, reading, and studying. You know, like just try to keep, keep something alive in some way. Yeah. And keep coming back here too, it can be very helpful. So thank you for your attention. I invite you to keep what is helpful and drop all the rest. And uh, let's see if there's, there's time for a few questions, comments, if anyone has any, anything they want to ask. Or if you want to share your own relationship to your practice, if I missed it. Really related to taking out the garbage, you said, yeah. And when I'm taking out the garbage, I also, the the trap I'm leaving the most is trying to solve things. Yeah. You know? Um, So, I don't totally know what to do without that. Yeah. Yeah. Or what to say, yeah. or what 
what to do so I can quickly get back to the meditation. And so lately I've just been trying to feel the suffering of that hurry. To be like, oh. But then I, I still sometimes come out of the meditation like, why haven't I figured anything out? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, tr- I'll try and repeat a little what you said. So she's talking about like the, relating to this uh, taking out the garbage one and then noticing that the, she's trying to figure things out in the meditation and particularly notice this sense of hurrying, like wanting to hurry up and figure it out so I can get back to the meditation. And then when it doesn't get figured out, feeling frustrated, like, ah, why didn't I figure it out? Something like that, yeah. And then not lately been relating to it, just feeling the suffering of that. Yeah, that's good practice. Feeling, feeling suffering, it's a, <laughs> it never sounds fun, but you know, recognizing the way in which, the way we're relating to things is, is suffering, dukkha, that's good, direct awareness of the first noble truth. Right? Something that might be helpful just conceptually about it is that, you know, the, the thinking mind always wants to know, you know, and wants, always wants to figure things out. And it could be that we don't have that much space in our life to like just think things through and stuff. So then when we sit in meditation, it seems like, good, I'll figure it all out. But really what we're developing in practice with uh, awareness is this different way of knowing than the cognitive thinking mind. And you're probably already pretty well-versed in the cognitive thinking mind. So you could consider this like, okay, this is this time in which I'm developing this different way of knowing, this different way of relating to thought, to emotion, to energy. So, so let's give that a try. And It's hard to believe that from that can sometimes actually come answers, sometimes you know, not, but that during this time let me practice this different way of, of knowing, of relating, which really is what this practice is also about. So learning this different capacity also can serve you very much in your life and becoming more intuitive and, you know, just relating in a different way. But that's exactly what we talked about when we talked about why we're here yeah. in the night. And I was saying, like, how is this going to lead to action? So I think I'm still pretty convinced that I understand what you mean about this knowing, and I think that's what, that's the joy that keeps me coming back. Yeah. But... I'm still totally convinced that it's my cognitive mind that's, that knows how to come up with action steps. Like, what are we going to do? Like, this, this, this. Yeah. So, like, going from that to action. And, and somebody said, well, I said, you know, the courage to take action. And then they said, well, you know, maybe the more you sit, you know, the more that courage. I don't know. Yeah, what do you think about action? So a question about, like, what do you think about action? And she's like, I kind of, I get what you're saying, but there's part of me that really believes, like, the cognitive mind is what comes up with the answer and uh, comes up with uh, action steps, right? My smart goals get met by, yeah, cognitive mind. Yeah, I mean, the cognitive mind itself, of course, believes most highly in the cognitive mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like intuitive, but intuitive, right? Whatever. Like... We are number one, so <laughs> invest everything here. Like, I will tell you everything you need to know. Don't believe in any of that other stuff, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to learn to take it with a grain of salt. Like, it's, it's very useful, too, and there's actually something else, right, which it doesn't want to hear about, and which also cannot be proved by the cognitive mind, except, for example, 
This idea that I can solve everything through thought. So where does thought come from? Don't know. Whose thoughts are they? Can you believe every thought that goes through your mind? Helpful observation that undercuts the cognitive mind sometimes. Uh, Does the cognitive mind always come up with an efficient, clean, direct solution to things? Or does it sometimes chew on problems over and over, kind of like the cow chewing the cud, going back to second stomach, third stomach, fourth stomach, fifth stomach, on and on. When we pay attention, we can see this stuff happening. Yeah? Uh, so it's all this stuff that means not to totally dismiss the cognitive mind or the thinking mind as absolutely useless, but just to put it in its good place. You know, put it in its good place. And you can trust that like 20, let's see, maybe we'll subtract the time that you're sleeping because the cognitive mind may, or not, may not believe that it's in charge then. But like, yeah, let's say you're awake 16 hours. So, okay, 15 and a half hours, I'm fully plugged in and invested in the cognitive mind. So let me give this half hour to this other crazy thing that I somehow feel is useful. Yeah, I'm just giving you sort of ways to talk to your cognitive mind to settle it down. Yeah? Okay. All right, thank you. So, I probably should let you all go, but I'll stick around if anyone had anything they want to ask me or talk about that uh, there was not time for. Um, So let's just sit together for a brief moment. Connect again with awareness, with sense of the body. Connect with the heart. Can appreciate our opportunity to practice here together and to reflect on teachings of Dharma. Can appreciate ourselves for our efforts, particularly our heroic wisdom of showing up at Dharma practice instead of watching sports on TV tonight. (laughs) And we can connect with a sense of well-wishing for all beings everywhere. The winners, the losers, and everyone in between. May we all rest in truth. May we all connect with our deep dignity as living beings. May we all be free from suffering and harm. and thank you in advance for your support that you make. As Dharma teacher, we live by uh, the donations that you give, so I appreciate them very much and hope to see you again sometime.